0: Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice.
1: In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient.
0: Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice.
1: Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way.
0: The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team.
1: the
0: team. Welcome to The Kidney Commute, an interprofessional podcast brought to you by NKF. My name is Dori Minch, a transplant social worker at Wake Forest Baptist Hospital in North Carolina, and it is my pleasure to be leading today's discussion about an innovative study done through PCORI investigating the treatment of depression in dialysis patients. We will focus on depression prevalence in dialysis and the findings of best practice interventions in this population as determined through the study. Joining me today is a uniquely qualified interprofessional team to discuss this topic, and
2: I'm going to pass it to them to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Amanda Grace. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in Nashville, Tennessee. Currently, I am a private practice therapist. Previously, I was a social worker and therapist for Vanderbilt Home Dialysis.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Daniel Suker. I am a clinical health psychologist by training, and I'm currently the director of behavioral health at the Roguson Institute, which is a kidney research and treatment center across New York City.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Dawn Edwards, and I am a 32-year kidney patient from Queens, New York. I've been a patient advocate for 25 years, and I'm also a home dialysis patient and advocate.
4: Good morning, everyone. My name is Carlin Clark. I am a behavioral health interventionist and coach and social worker in Seattle, Washington. I work at the Kidney Research Institute, University of Washington, doing research for patients on dialysis.
0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. To just jump right into it, Daniel, I'd like to start with you. Briefly, can you tell us a little bit more about what PCORI grants are and what they are investigating?
1: Sure. PCORI is an acronym for the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, and it is an independent nonprofit research organization that its primary focus is to fund research, which is designed to empower patients to make better healthcare choices uh, for themselves. Their primary mechanism of intervention or funding is that they fund clinical effectiveness research, which is often called CER, which in general compares two different types of medical treatments or services to help uh, people and their stakeholders involved in their care make better informed decisions about care choices.
0: That's great. And can you tell us a little bit about your study treating depression in dialysis patients and what it looked at, including design and who you involved in that study?
1: Sure. So I'm just one of the uh, investigators for the study, but it was a, a group of investigators from the University of Washington, the University of New Mexico, and the University of Texas Southwest, as well as uh, myself. And we got together and you know we, we started to brainstorm around ideas for treating depression because uh, depression is about four times more common in people who are on uh, maintenance dialysis as compared to the general population. And we know from prior research that Higher levels of depression are associated with higher rates of non-adherence to that dialysis, to medical prescription, and as a result, there's higher healthcare utilization, in general, poorer quality of life, and, and even higher mortality in people who are depressed. So we thought it was really time to develop some, some sort of intervention study. So what we did was we came together and we developed the ASCEND study, which is a parallel group randomized control trial, which means that we were testing two interventions. And what we were trying to do was we were trying to see what were the most effective treatments for depression for people who were on long-term hemodialysis. So it's a bit of a complicated study in that we had two randomizations, the initial randomization was designed to compare an engagement interview or a control group, and the engagement interview was really designed to see if we could get a higher rate of people to enroll in our clinical trial. That part of the study did not work out in that there wasn't really much of a difference between the people that went into this kind of experimental, more in-depth interview to try to get them to engage in research versus the people that just kind of had the standard practices. So that part did not work. But the kind of main part of the study was that we randomized 120 people to uh, either 12 weeks of antidepressant drug therapy using sertraline or face-to-face cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll hear a little bit more about, I guess, both of these interventions. As an overall kind of takeaway from the study, the primary outcome of the study was at 12 weeks. So we did three months of intervention. So you either got the sertraline or the face-to-face cognitive behavioral depression. And our primary outcome measure is something called the QUID-C, or the Quick Inventory of Depressive Symptoms, which is a clinician-assessed instrument. So it's a a really good, gold-standard measure of depression. It's not subjective, but rather an objective measure, as best as depression can be measured. And what we found was there was a slight difference at the end of the 12-week period favoring sertraline. This slight difference was what we would say is not clinically meaningful, meaning that it was just a small numeric difference, but not big enough that it would actually reflect a different kind of quality of life or a different level of depression for the people in either group. Uh, You know, in a different way, if we look at the people that had a response to treatment, which we had defined as a greater than 50% reduction in, in depression scores, so it was a similar proportion in both groups had Response And then if we look at remission, which is people that were treated to no longer being depressed, again, a similar response in both groups. While the response was kind of similar, uh, perhaps a slight advantage for the sertraline group, we did also notice that the number of non-serious adverse events were higher in the medication arm. In the, serious adverse events, there there were no serious adverse events in either of the groups, but the non none that were attributed to the intervention, but the non-serious adverse events, there were more side effects experienced by the participants who were randomized to the medication arm as opposed to the cognitive behavioral therapy arm.
0: Thank you for that. Don, as our patient panelist, can you share your experience with depression or other emotional health concerns in your dialysis or kidney disease journey or, or any insight that you can provide as a patient
3: advocate? As a 32-year dialysis patient, I certainly experienced feelings of depression and anxiety wrapped around my health concerns. I experienced these feelings early in my dialysis journey and I didn't have them attended to. And as the years went on, I noticed that the feelings, the depression was getting more and more out of control. And um, finally, I started to act out in the ways like Dr. Zucker, uh explained earlier. With missing treatments and not taking medicines as prescribed and things of that nature. So, fortunately, my care team intervened, and that's when I sought out mental health resources that were extremely helpful to me. So, as a patient advocate, I can understand the kidney journey. And as I talk to patients, I always remind them that it's okay to seek out mental health resources. We're going through a hard time and life changes, you know, from day to day as a kidney patient. And it's really important for you to seek out resources and go to your care team about any type of health crisis or any type of health problems that you may be having, including mental health.
0: Thank you for that real-life perspective. I think we talk a lot about the prevalence and the impact depression and mental health concerns can have in the renal community, but I think it's really important for us to hear that from someone who has actually been through it. So thank you for sharing that with us. Amanda, I know that Daniel spoke briefly about some prevalence of depression in the renal patient community, but can you speak some more to how big of an impact that has or any other mental health disorders we may commonly see in this patient population?
2: Sure. As, you know, Dr. Asukar had mentioned, major depression is four times more prevalent in those on maintenance dialysis treatment than the general population. Not only were we seeing a lot of depression, but I also saw a lot of anxiety and other situations that had come up over the course of people's lives becoming more prevalent now like we've seen like a lot of trauma that people have experienced that maybe that's starting to come up for them as they are going on dialysis or they've been on it for a while but i would definitely say depression and anxiety were the big ones that i saw
0: and and those can be pretty paralyzing if left untreated Can you speak at all to the requirement and the importance of mental health screening in the dialysis center and how that may influence outcomes?
2: Absolutely. So one of the first things a social worker does when a a new client comes or a new patient comes to the dialysis clinic is we do this assessment called the PHQ-2. And it's just a basic assessment, a basic depression screen. And then based off of that, how the, the patient scores, we may go a little bit further and do what's called a PHQ-9, and that's like a further depression screen. And so, based off of that, then we can kind of tailor some interventions for that client and try to address that depression right away.
0: And those are, you know, certainly required by CMS for outcome reporting as well. Not only is it important for us to know where our patients are with their emotional health, it's a it's a requirement from Medicare, Carlin, Can you tell us about how you have found or how you know that depression affects medical outcomes?
4: Sure. And Dr. Seeker already addressed some of this, but depression is associated with poor patient-centered outcomes, such as quality of life, increased burden of somatic symptoms, cardiac issues, sexual dysfunction, increased hospitalizations, more frequent withdrawal from dialysis, and, and mortality. It's also associated with increased likelihood of shortening dialysis treatments or missing treatments that we've already kind of addressed or spoke about in this, um, decreased medication adherence, kind of just overall sort of decreased compliance with recommendations from providers. Yet patients on dialysis are often under-assessed and often undertreated for depression, sometimes even after they have been assessed.
0: And how did the study address depression in these
4: patients? This particular study, um, the overall goals of the ASCEND study were to provide education about depression in the dialysis patient to improve strategies for coping with side effects of dialysis and to help patients modify their behavior schedules to include Things that are enjoyable and to provide support and guidance for improving health related behaviors. And the purpose of the cognitive behavioral therapy in this population was to explore the thoughts and feelings associated with dialysis treatment for patients and to modify distorted thoughts and maladaptive beliefs that might contribute to depression in dialysis patients. The cognitive behavioral therapy also aimed to examine and modify behaviors that contributed to. Uh, depressed affect. In this study, the dialysis patient would meet chairside with a coach for 10 visits over 12 weeks. Each session was about between 30, 45 minutes or so. And you would learn from the participant about their story, their dialysis journey, undergo uh, assessment, provide some psychoeducation around depression, um, using a lot of motivational interviewing techniques. and the. Intervention itself over these sessions provided education and opportunity to practice behavioral activation, so getting folks up and moving and doing things that they enjoy, kind of gotten away from as they're focused on this transition in their lives, being dialysis and the schedules that the dialysis process takes. We talk about the importance of automatic thoughts and provide thought logs for folks to examine how those thoughts affect their emotions and behaviors and the connection between those. We talk about categories of distorted thinking and model cognitive restructuring. How is this thinking helpful to you? How is it not helpful? And what are some ways that you can kind of reframe that perspective in a way that is more helpful. we talk about their goals and motivation for living healthier lives and how low mood impacts health behaviors. It's often not really obvious to, to patients, kind of weighing the cost and benefit of changing different health behaviors to try and improve adherence and overall well-being and health. And it gets very specific in terms of setting goals around diet and exercise and medication adherence, re-engaging with enjoyable activities and increasing physical activities. And then we also talk about strategies for dealing with anxiety, physical relaxation techniques, deep breathing. And towards the end of these sessions, we talk about moving forward, what will be their action plan to kind of stay on track. We also provided some facilitation with their primary care providers for ongoing support. And the goal was to educate folks around what depression even is. Um, We often use the term low mood rather than depression. Initially, we found that to be folks more receptive when we frame it in a way that seems a little less diagnostic and a little more familiar.
1: One thing that we know well before the studies, we knew that the rates of depression were high. you know, much higher than other medical illnesses. And some of the reasons why the rates of depression are so high is because this is a really difficult condition to live with. It's a terminal disease. Plus, there's the complexity of the overlap with uremia, with the symptoms of kidney failure. So sometimes it's hard for the physician, the nephrologist, the patient, anyone to really know what, you know, what the source of these experiences are. Why is this person feeling the fatigue that they're feeling? Is it due to what we call dialysis washout, or is it really due to some sort of mood component? One of the concepts in in research is to develop equipoise, is to develop interventions that have like an equal chance of working. And, you know, we debated a lot about the different types of interventions we would like to use, and you know you just heard this really detailed description from Carlin about how psychosocial intervention and what that might look like but i think it was a really open question to us as to would psychosocial intervention kind of be the appropriate intervention for people who are going through a medical challenge in the way that dialysis patients are and similarly you know we we also offered people serchrally through an algorithm based care we got people titrated to a treatment dose of the antidepressant the question was I think also pretty open, like, you know, do do antidepressants work as well in this population as they would in other populations? Partly due to the medical complexity of how these drugs are metabolized, but also due to the presentation issues that I just mentioned. So I think there was a really kind of strong open question as to would either of these interventions really work in this population? Or would both of them kind of fall flat? And the way that we saw it is if either one of these would work, then that's one tool that we can advocate for, for saying that that should be available to patients on dialysis. Thankfully, our perception is that both of them worked pretty well so that there's opportunities here for patients to have choices about how their depression treatment should go.
0: Those are really good points. And is there a way that providers can maybe not so much replicate your study, but they can look to see what best intervention may be available in their patient population or in a specific patient, whether to refer for medication or therapeutic intervention or a combination. Are there any key markers that you found that would say one patient would be better with a specific intervention versus another?
1: That is a fantastic question. The short answer to that question is no because we randomized people because of that we were really unable to answer some of these key questions which is how do we know which treatment might work better for whom meaning both medication and psychosocial intervention we did not have the opportunity to study that because we really needed a clean design here to because the goal was really to figure out you know was there a treatment advantage for one versus the other unfortunately usually comes down to what resources are available. It would be nice to kind of imagine a universe where we could say, you know, here's a prescriber for an antidepressant, and here's an interventionalist for psychosocial intervention. Let the patient choose. That, that I guess, would be the ideal way of a patient-centered approach, but unfortunately, there's just limited resources, in particular in the dialysis universe. Outside referral is particularly challenging for dialysis patients. Most dialysis people who are on, you know, long-term maintenance dialysis require 4 hour roughly 4 hours of treatment three times a week which means that 3 days out of the week they are already traveling to dialysis adding an outpatient appointment for ongoing mental health treatment is just really difficult to get people to schedule and to do we know that there's a kind of a mental health crisis in general in the world now it is particularly difficult for dialysis patients to make it into a outpatient treatment
0: Don I know that you shared that you had experienced depression and it certainly affected your outcomes and and your dialysis experience. How did you overcome this or how do you recommend
3: uh, other people to address and overcome this? Well, fortunate for me, my care team was really a big part of my life. And I learned that early in my advocacy career that you have to make your care team important to you. You have to kind of make them your friend. You have to talk to them and you have to be honest about what's going on in your life. Fortunately for me, my care team felt comfortable coming to me and talking to me about seeking out mental health resources. When I got in a crisis situation, they jumped right in. That's not the case for all patients in all dialysis facilities. I understand that. One of the things that I try to do when I visit dialysis centers and I mentor patients and I talk to patients is that I try to tell them, Um, that it's really important to empower themselves over their kidney journey and not just sit back and accept what's happening to them. If you feel yourself starting to change or you start feeling helpless or you're not doing the things that you would like to do or you're not interacting with family members and friends anymore, and you're not feeling well generally overall, then it's time to talk to your care team and get them involved. Sometimes it's not just a physical thing that's going on. Sometimes you need to seek some type of mental health resources. And, you know, that's what I did for myself. You know, I stood up and I had to advocate and I, and I said, yes, you know, I do need some type of resources in order for me to overcome this horrible feeling that I was having that was taking over my life as a result of me advocating for myself and learning about what was necessary to help myself to feel better and to continue to be active in life. This is what I share with the patients that I talk to, that I mentor, and that I advocate for.
0: And that is so important. And this question is for Amanda Carlin and Don. But Don, I'd like to start with you. Um, do you are you aware of or uh, has expressed to you any cultural reasons for avoiding um, acknowledging mental health and seeking mental health treatment?
3: Absolutely, and this is why. Um, this is why I'm a patient advocate because it's important for me to speak up for the people that don't really speak up for themselves. And one of the things that I noticed most of all is in my community, in the Black and Brown communities, mental health is not something that we like to talk about. We think that you should go to church and pray it away or you should just not talk about it and keep it moving and stay strong, be big about it. And that just doesn't help. It doesn't help you to feel better. It doesn't help you to get out of the rut that you're in. And you have to talk about these things. And you have to, sometimes you have to go a little bit further. And sometimes you have to seek medical intervention. It's really important to me as a patient advocate, and especially in the black and brown communities, for me to tell patients that it is okay to not feel well. It's okay that you're in a rut. It's okay. It's a part of this journey, but don't stay there. Stick up for yourself. Speak up and get the help that you need so that you can participate in life and so that you can enjoy the life that you have because every day is a gift and I don't want any patient to miss out on that because of lack of mental health resources.
0: Thank you for that really powerful statement. Um, Amanda, Carlin, or even Daniel, in your practice as a practitioner or coach. Do you see this as a barrier to mental health treatment and and how do you work to overcome that in your practice?
2: Sure. Yeah, we definitely saw this as a barrier in our practice. And one of the things that we tried to do was meet the client, meet the patient where they're at, right? Um, Not everyone is interested in therapy, but there are other ways to kind of meet the needs of the patients. And I think a big part of it is being creative and being aware that they know their life, they know what's going on. And it was important to take the time to really hear them and not do what, what we as clinicians or as staff think is best for them.
4: I totally agree with Amanda. It's very much a focus on understanding where the patient is coming from and what their comfort level is with different types of interventions and framing the information in ways that might better align with where they're coming from, building rapport, really engaging with patients to see where they're at in terms of change and willingness to identify their symptoms as a concern and something that they want to work on
1: and I guess I'll just add from from like a systems perspective stigma is not only around mental health you know practitioners tend to like to do the things that we are well trained to do and that we are comfortable doing not necessarily the things that perhaps our patient need at the moment looking at the at nephrology care in general there are certain areas where stigma is just really an issue, both on the patient side and on the practitioner side. Mental health is one example. Sexual health is another example. Uh, There's just, there are things that are kind of at the, let's say, periphery of the nephrologist target intervention area, but are really core to the patient experience of what people are going through. So I think as we develop further interventions, part of it is kind of getting people to be accepting of these interventions. And also the other half of the battle is getting the systems and the doctors to buy into these interventions and to make them available and commonplace so that we can kind of get them into the hands of the people that really need them the most.
0: Thank you. And, you know, I think that really answers some of the questions you mentioned about The findings of the studies and next steps that we should take, one intervention, both interventions still determine per patient and and the comfort level of the practitioner. Are there any large global things that we can do to address this immediately or start some kind of best practice in each center? Or would you say it's site-specific and more to come on that?
2: I can speak to what we had previously did at the Vanderbilt Home Dialysis Clinic. So we found that there was a great need for therapy for our patients, both in-center and in our home program. And so we started to offer therapy at our clinic. Those that were doing in-center, they could come after their appointment into a therapy room, and we would provide therapy there. And then for those that came monthly, they could also have a therapy appointment. It was also offered to them weekly. We opened it up to families as well because we noticed that caregiver burden was large. We also have a very large pediatric population. And so we offered the services to them and we found that those kids really needed a lot of additional support. And having a therapist in the clinic that also knows quite a bit about dialysis, I think was incredibly helpful Our nephrologists were also open to prescribing meds. So we tried to do our best to address our patients' mental health needs at the clinic.
0: And I feel like our listeners will have this question. Did you do that in addition to managing your dialysis patient caseload, or did you do that independent of the whole clinic caseload and there was another social worker working with you?
2: We do have multiple social workers. That was not its own thing. I also worked. The case management with patients as well
0: and I can speak for a lot of social workers that are listening to this thinking right now how in the world do you even have time for that? I know it you know it's work practices and and scheduling and having the really good buy-in from your leadership team to know how important those outcomes are so, That is a wonderful model that I'm sure we'll get lots of questions on how we can replicate that other than just cloning ourselves every day and having more FTEs in the clinic. I think that we know that untreated mental health concerns and emotional health concerns can absolutely negatively impact our patient outcomes. Increased hospitalizations, increased mortality, decreased adherence, things that we all know that happen. This study and these interventions, I think, really point out that there is no one-size-fits-all, but also helps us to know that there are lots of options that may work as well as other options depending on patient outcomes. I'm grateful to hear that, you know, the, the option of medication was close to as good as the option of CBT, because I think for our dialysis patients, people feel that medication may not always address the concern that they have. I'm grateful to hear that that both work. And to know that there may not just be one psychosocial intervention, and we have to look at different models. So it may not be just CBT. There may be other therapeutic models that may be helpful. But in this study, we certainly have seen how important that CBT and, and Cetraline can impact depression in this population I want to thank our panel members for their contributions to this important discussion and to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us on this ride of the kidney commute. And remember that eligible audiences can earn CE credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. And stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice.